Our gospel reads up directly where we left off last week, and we left off right in the middle of an event in the life of Jesus. We, we cut it off halfway through last week. So this morning, as we come into this reading, I, I want to just sort of refresh our memories as to what we read and what we saw in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21, very briefly, and then we'll pick up again with today's reading. Last week, what we saw is that Jesus, within the context of Luke chapter 3 and uh, the, the context of his, his birth, the context of his being baptized by John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit coming upon him, led out into the wilderness by the Spirit, being tempted by Satan, overcoming Satan. St. Luke tells us midway in Luke chapter 4 that he returned to the Galilee region in the power of the Holy Spirit, and there began his public ministry. He was preaching, he was teaching in the synagogues of Galilee. And then we're told that he goes home. He goes back to his hometown. He goes back to Nazareth. And on the Sabbath day, Jesus was found in the synagogue, as was his custom. He was surrounded there in Nazareth, in that synagogue, by the people who knew him better than anyone else. He was surrounded by his family, his friends, and his neighbors, who had watched him grow up, become a carpenter like his father, Joseph, and become the young man that he was before them. There at the synagogue on on that day, he was given an honor to to read from Scripture and then to offer a teaching or exposition of that Scripture. And St. Luke records what Jesus read in this way. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In this, Jesus uh, is disclosing his identity and his mission. He is declaring with no ambiguity in no uncertain terms that he is the special agent of God anointed with the Holy Spirit to be the Messiah. And then he explains his vocation, his purpose as the Messiah. I think it's helpful for us to think about what Jesus says from Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2 in terms of gospel, freedom, and justice. Here's what I mean by this. Jesus says that the, uh, the Spirit is upon him to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And right there in his saying that the Spirit is there upon him to proclaim good news, that is gospel. And what is gospel? It is the good news that God is doing, has done what man cannot woman could not do for themselves. In Jesus' day, the gospel was that he was there, present. The second part is that uh, Jesus has come as Messiah to proclaim and effect freedom, liberty for the captives, release for the oppressed. Now this is, uh, in in sort of a very physical idea, this is uh, the release of a captive to go to their true home. And in a spiritual sense, this is the freedom, the forgiveness found in Jesus to be set free to go to your true home with God through Jesus Christ, adopted to the Father. That's freedom. True freedom, I would submit to you, is only found in Jesus Christ. 
And then the third thing that he has here is, is what I'm calling justice. And I, I think there's a couple of things from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 that we need to look at to come to that, that conclusion. Justice. Justice isn't getting what you deserve. Justice is really wrongs being set right, being made back up, being made whole. And here, when Jesus says that he's going to recover, break, proclaim and effect recovering of sight to the blind, he's making people whole. He's giving them justice, God's justice. Also, we see here that, that the, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's justice. It has connections to what in Leviticus is called the year of Jubilee. Every 49 years, uh, Israel was to have and celebrate a year of Jubilee. They were to, uh, if I'm, my memory serves me correct, they were to not plant. They were only to reap from what the produce of the land would give them. And they were to restore the property that had been exchanged, uh, perhaps for debt or being sold from family to family, clan to clan, tribe to tribe. They're supposed to return and restore the property. Slaves were to be set free. Servants were to be released from their vows and their bonds. Justice, compassionate restoration, protection, keeping those who are on the fringes within the society as a whole. And so I think we can say that Jesus, uh, there in, uh, in, in his, this, this synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus, using this messianic terms from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, clearly proclaims that he is the Messiah anointed with the Holy Spirit to proclaim gospel, to effect freedom, and to bring about justice. And that was last week's sermon. Now here, what we see today, what we connect with today, what we really get a glimpse of how people responded to him you know what would this crowd of the synagogue in nazareth how would they respond to this this proclamation that he's the messiah and that he's come for gospel for freedom and for justice well spoiler alert they tried to kill him we heard that this morning given that luke has already reported the people are in expectation of the messiah and given the historical reality that the Jewish people were looking and longing for the Messiah to come, it would be reasonable to think that this crowd in this synagogue would be overwhelmed with excitement and joy at Jesus' self-disclosure. And yet by the end of the passage, the crowd was seeking to kill Jesus as a false prophet, to execute him as misrepresenting God. That escalates pretty quickly. The crowd in Nazareth responded to Jesus' self-disclosure with murderous rage because Jesus confronted their false expectations of his vocation, and by extension, Jesus challenged their perception of what it meant for them to be God's people. Jesus' messianic vocation is one of radical hospitality, offering gospel and freedom and justice to the, those who are on the fringes, the margins, the other. And this is his call to his people. And it really ticked them off. And quite frankly, sometimes it still ticks Jesus' people off today. Let's look at Luke chapter 4, and let's start at verse 22. 
Luke chapter 4, verse 22. Here at Emmanuel Church, we are really committed to using the English Standard Version translation of the Bible. That's what I read from this morning. It was what we read from every Sunday in all of our corporate worship. I know other folks use NIV. Some use New King James, and that's, that's fine. Those are all quality translations. I personally believe that the English Standard Version is one of the better translations. But in Luke chapter 4, verse 22, we read this. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. While this seems to read the crowd was first happy with Jesus and then changed their mind a little bit later on, there is some ambiguity in the Greek text. The Greek can be legitimately read in a negative sense. And so where the English Standard Version has chosen to say all spoke well of him, we could actually read that legitimately to say all witnessed against him. It changes the tone from the very beginning. Indicating that they were already angry. As soon as Jesus read from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, as soon as he said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing and sat down, they were already ticked off at Jesus. Now Luke does tell us that they were marveling at his gracious words, and this doesn't necessarily mean that they liked what he was saying or that they endorsed what he was saying or even accepted what he was saying. We can, as human beings, we can marvel at the words that come out of a person's mouth. We can recognize the grace of words that a person says and still not believe it, accept it, or endorse it. And I think it's a reasonable way to understand what's happening here is that the, the, uh, the crowd was angry with Jesus from the beginning because of what he did not say. They become murderously enraged with Jesus then because he what he does say, and they try to lynch him. So why were they angry? What did he leave out? In his reading of Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, Jesus carefully edited, and he ended the reading short. He actually cuts it off mid-verse of verse 2. In that passage of Isaiah, after the blessings of the Messiah are pronounced, there's this pronouncement of judgment that God's going to come and destroy the Gentiles or subdue the Gentiles, and that he is going to, God's going to uh, turn the wealth of the Gentiles over to the people of the Jews, and that the Gentiles would then serve the Jewish people. That's what Jesus left out. Jesus left out what Joachim Jeremiah calls, well, let me say it this way. Jesus left out what they were going to get in his Messiah's coming. And instead of pronouncing judgment upon the Gentiles, Jesus is actually saying radical hospitality to the Gentiles. Jesus is actually saying gospel, freedom, and justice to the Gentiles. Now, why would this make them upset? What's the big deal, right? Perhaps it is that we could could think that uh, if we were in their shoes, what we would do is we would say, okay, great, as long as we get some of that blessing too, take it to whoever you want. We don't care. They're upset. They're angry with Jesus because he is confronting their expectations. They thought they knew better about who the Messiah would be. To understand the disappointment, the anger that the crowd felt, we need to understand a little bit more about the history of the city or the village of Nazareth. According to Kenneth Bailey in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, Nazareth was a particularly conservative Jewish town surrounded by Gentiles. There's no mention of Nazareth in the Old Testament 
what history tells us is that the village was settled as a colonizing outpost about 200 years before Jesus was even born. It was settled as a colonizing outpost as part of a wider attempt by the Jewish authorities to regain, reclaim the Galilee region for the Jewish culture. It was known, this little village was known to have been very conservative in its outlook and its expression until 400 years after Jesus was crucified, risen, and ascended. It was so conservative, in fact, that when Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and destroyed the temple, that a group of the priests moved out of Jerusalem and relocated in Nazareth. So at the time of Jesus, such a community would have been politically, culturally, religiously self-conscious and intensely nationalistic. For a community such as this, that, that little part of Isaiah 61 that Jesus intentionally omitted would have been a foundational aspect of their messianic hope. And now he's just taken this away. This promise of reversal, this promise of the Gentiles being driven back and subdued, this promise of the Gentiles' wealth being given over to them, that was the promise that they would get something from the Messiah's coming. And Jesus left that part out. Maybe we can begin to understand that they would have thought that God had promised them this, and now the one claiming to be Messiah is saying, nope, not so fast, my friend. Angered by what Jesus did not say, the crowd essentially wants to know then just who Jesus thinks he is. Is this not Joseph's son? We knew him back when he was just banging nails. <laughs> the implication, as Jesus points out, is that they want him to prove that he can say what he said. They want him to prove that he has the authority to do what he says he will do, and he refuses. And to a crowd who's already becoming angry, already angered, Jesus doubles down. Jesus he puts gasoline on the fire until it becomes a raging inferno. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a, a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. That is when Luke says, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. So Jesus has already said that the blessings of the Messiah are going to go to the fringes of society. That the, the gospel and the for freedom and, and justice will go to those who are marginalized, those who are defenseless, those who have no voice for themselves. Jesus has already said that we're going to, you know, that part about Gentile uh, domination, he leaves that out. And now Jesus basically tells the people of Nazareth that they're like the apostate Israel of Elijah's day. That they have no claim to direct who he will go to and what he will do. And that, in fact, the blessing will be taken to the Gentile other. Jesus is pointing out that Nazareth in particular and Israel as a whole they're not the ones who are going to direct the Messiah. They have no claim on him, no claim of exclusivity. He isn't going to do or not do what they tell him to do or not do. Rather, he's going to do what God wants him to do. And like Elijah or Elisha, Jesus will go where God sends him, to the people to whom God sends him, even if it's the Gentiles. You can kind of hear their grumbling grow, right? 
And second, then Jesus connects the crowd at Nazareth with the people of Israel during a time of incredible apostasy and sin. If you look at First, Corinth, uh, First Kings chapter 17, that's, that's when Elijah is there. And the king at the time is Ahab, married to Jezebel. Not nice things are happening under Ahab and Jezebel. This is not a compliment, folks. This is not an encouragement. Jesus is telling the people in the synagogue of Nazareth that you're like Israel at this time. You're full of apostasy and sin. And as a result, the blessing of God is going to go somewhere else. And that's the third issue. Maybe that's what pushes them over the edge. The people to whom the blessing will go will be none other than the despised other, the Gentile. Jesus is quite clear, the year of the Lord's favor, the blessings of good news, of freedom and justice, is for the other, just as it is available for the Jewish people. Just as it is available for those within Nazareth, so it is available for those within the wider Galilee and beyond. And so it is, fundamentally I think we can say that the crowd was angry with Jesus for these reasons. Jesus proclaimed God's intention to offer radical, redemptive hospitality Gospel, freedom, and justice to the Gentiles, to the marginalized, to the outcasts and the exiles, along with the Jewish people. And by extension, Jesus was proclaiming his expectation that those within God's kingdom would do the same. To be a kingdom person is to follow after the king, to do what the king does. To be a person of the Messiah is to follow after the Messiah, to do what the Messiah does. They got it. They understood it, which is why they wanted to kill him. This left the audience with two alternatives, Kenneth Bailey writes. Either Jesus was indeed the anointed one of God and should be followed, or he was an arrogant, presumptuous, and perhaps dangerous young man who must be silenced. And so they, they opted for the silencing effort. But this was not the time or the place for Jesus to die. And so passing through their midst, he went away. Jesus' messianic vocation is one of redemptive, radical hospitality, of gospel, freedom, and justice to the other. And this is his call to his people. Now, by way of application today, I, I think it's important for us to focus on this particular aspect of this passage from Luke chapter 4. The Messiah shares his purpose. The Messiah shares his mission with his people. And we must be very aware of where we find ourselves in Scripture. Uh, in our own delusions of grandeur, we may perhaps think that we're like Jesus, standing up in front of a hostile crowd. That's not us. I think the reality would be that uh, Jesus is preaching to a synagogue, a group of people gathered for worship on an appointed day and time. So I would submit to you that we probably ought to hear this as if we were that synagogue. I would submit to you that we ought to hear this as the church, listening <laughs> to what Jesus would say to us. Let it challenge us the way it challenged them. So just as Jesus proclaimed good news to the poor, gospel, just as he proclaimed freedom for the captive and showed compassion through healing, so his people are expected to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to show compassion to those who are broken and burnt out. The expressed recipients are those who are marginalized, those who are uh, on the fringes, those who are helpless, those who are defenseless, those who are voiceless. 
Jesus proclaimed God's intention to offer this radical redemptive hospitality on the fringes and to the Gentiles, along with the Jewish people. And by extension, he expects his church to do the same. This entire episode, I think, in Luke chapter 4, it helps to reveal something of who God's character is, something of God's character, and then I think it helps us to understand the character his church should reflect. In this, we see the character of God as, as uh, focused on and expressed through hospitality. Hans Berzma is a theologian who he actually has said hospitality bespeaks the very essence of God. God is one who welcomes. God is one who casts wide his arms and says, come, all you, and find healing here. God is the one who, showing hospitality, he goes out of his way to send the Son. That's gospel. He goes out of his way to bring freedom of sin and freedom of captivity. That's freedom. He goes out of his way to restore to wholeness. That's justice. That's who God is. And Jesus is reflecting that the Messiah's vocation is based on God's character, and thus the vocation, the purpose of God's church, should be based on God's character, hospitality. A warm and loving welcome for the purpose of gospel, for the purpose of freedom, for the purpose of justice to all those we like and those we don't particularly like, those who are like us and those who are other than us, those who are at the center of society and those who are on the fringes of society. That's at the heart of Jesus' self-disclosure of his messianic identity, his messianic purpose, And thus, it's at the heart of the mission for Jesus' church. And I think the Nazareans understood it. And I think they openly rejected it because they understood it. They did not respond out of ignorance. They responded because they knew all too well what Jesus was saying and what he was expecting of them. They couldn't handle it. What about us? I mean, this is just a reality of our our life, right? Our globalized world is becoming smaller and smaller all the time, and we frequently come face-to-face with the other. And it doesn't matter how we choose to define other. And so I think we have to ask ourselves the question, legitimately ask the question, what is the Christian responsibility to the other, no matter how we define them? What is the Christian responsibility to immigrants and refugees? to those who look differently, speak differently, believe and behave and sin differently than we do? What is a Christian responsibility to the other, to those at the edges of society who have no voice? Jesus seems to be saying quite clearly the Christian responsibility is radical, redemptive hospitality, gospel, freedom, and justice. In his book, Christian Hospitality and Muslim Immigration in an Age of Fear, he didn't want to go with the shorter one, the shorter title. (laughs) Matthew Kamenik says this, God freely elects, saves, and welcomes people into the divine embrace because God is, at God's core, hospitable. The ultimate work of the cross, according to Calvin, is not wrath, it is love. One's personal experience of divine hospitality must overflow into the social, economic, cultural, and even political lives. Having received gospel freedom and justice, having received grace from the Messiah, 
our lives are changed, our lives are renewed, our lives are redirected to become lives of hospitality, to become lives of gospel, of freedom and justice. Because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done, those who follow after Jesus are expected to extend grace and hospitality to the other, regardless of race, ethnicity, voting habits, political preferences, addictions, sins, education, economics, to those on the margins. This warm welcome, this hospitality is to be done in the name of Jesus, out of the grace of Jesus, in order to share the saving, life-transforming love of Jesus. In his book, Kamenik gives an illustration from the city of Rotterdam in the Netherlands, home to one of the largest Islamic populations in Europe, Rotterdam is a city awash in controversy and debate. Tensions there are high. He writes, In this urban fray, a small group of conservative Christian women has decided to make its mark. They do not protest. They do not run for office. They do not call for national dialogues, laws, or programs. They sow. He goes on to elaborate that for over a decade now, they have had this effort to gather uh, in a heavily Muslim section of the city to stitch, knit, and talk. And every month they invite their Muslim neighbors to join them. As the Muslim and Christian women gather together, measuring and cutting, folding and seaming, they begin to talk, achieving what no government program could. This little sewing group is producing a rare social phenomenon in Dutch civil society, interethnic, interfaith friendship, and affection. And just so we're not mistaken about this little sewing group in Rotterdam, it is distinctly Christian in its hospitality. Kamenik actually asked them, what is your ultimate goal for this? And they responded unapologetically that their hope was to share the story of Jesus. One of the ladies stated, God alone sows the seeds of conversion in a person's soul. God alone makes the seeds of faith grow. We simply need to remove the stones from their garden. That's the kind of, I think, gospel hospitality that Jesus is talking about, the redemptive, radical hospitality, reaching out to the other, those who are different, for the purpose of gospel, of freedom, and of justice, wholeness. And here's an example of, of something that's going on in our, in our modern nation just in the past few weeks. Quite frankly, folks, I don't know what to do. Short of prayer, I don't know how we make a change. It's just been since the uh, National Sanctity of Human Life Sunday that over the last few weeks, New York has passed and signed into law one of the most liberal abortion bills in American history, allowing for the killing of a child up until the moment of birth. The Catholic governor of Rhode Island had has already vowed to sign a very similar bill into law. And this past week, the Virginia state governor, sorry, Virginia is a commonwealth, I apologize. <laughs> the governor of the commonwealth of Virginia openly advocated for infanticide on the radio. I don't know what to do, but it sure seems to me as if in that case, in, of the situation of something like abortion, there are multiple levels of those who cannot speak for themselves, starting with the child one who's on the fringe of society, who needs gospel, who needs freedom, who needs justice, starting with the voiceless, the defenseless, the child. And then you have, in this case, uh, we have to be aware that there are uh, men and women, uh, women especially, who have the devastating effect of abortion upon them. 
They too need gospel and freedom and justice, wholeness. You have doctors who perform these procedures. You have nurses who are involved. And then we have politicians who think they know better than everyone else when a person becomes a person. I don't know how to advocate. I feel helpless in this. And yet I know that in this case, in this situation, Jesus is the Lord of life. Jesus is saying gospel and freedom and justice to those on the fringes, those on the edges. How do we love? How do we care? Here at Emmanuel Church, we've defined our vision to be a church that glorifies God by blessing people with gospel ministries, that they may believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and join us in building his church. In the past year and in the coming years, hospitality, this warm welcome of the other in the name of Jesus, out of the grace of Jesus, with the purpose of sharing the life-transforming love of Jesus, has played and will continue to play a central role in the life of this church and its members. The Alpha Course is built upon the premise of hospitality, radical and redemptive hospitality. There is gospel, there is freedom, and there is justice. Sharing a meal together, listening to one another, offering the gift of presence in an evangelistic hospitality. This past fall, this past November, we celebrated Holy Smokes Barbecue Cook-Off. It's coming again in November 9th, 2019. This spring, April 27th, we'll have an arts and music festival. Both of these involve the welcome of any and all to our property in an effort to simply share space, to simply show a warm welcome in the name of Jesus for good food, for good music, for good fun, gospel, freedom, and justice. Our Emmanuel Music Project has just launched off a free recording studio for any and all who reflect God's image in them by the creation of music. Yet one more aspect of radical, redemptive hospitality. Folks, this scares us. It scares me. Radical, redemptive hospitality is challenging. We must be honest. Encountering the other, no matter how we define them, is a risk and it could scare us. But it is what the church is supposed to be about because that's what Jesus was about. Jesus' self-disclosure as the Messiah included his mission to proclaim good news, gospel, to proclaim and set people free, freedom, and the compassionate ministries of healing, of bringing wholeness, justice. Jesus is hospitality as he opens his arms upon the cross and welcomes all who would believe. Here in Destin and in the various communities in which we live, in our neighborhoods and our spheres of influence, who are the other that we encounter, and how can we love them with the warm welcome in the name of Jesus, out of the grace of Jesus, with a purpose of sharing the saving and life-transforming love of Jesus? Today we heard of Jesus challenging the crowd in his hometown, and I hope and pray that we allow Jesus' words to challenge us in the same way to call us to join with Jesus in his work of offering radical and redemptive hospitality, gospel, freedom, and justice to the other. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Gracious God, we praise you and give you thanks. Lord, we thank you that when we were the other, your Son came and died for us. And having received his grace, we give you thanks that we can now live for the other. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd give us eyes to see Come and be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand together and continue our worship as we sing.